You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Welcome to Five Things That Make Life Better. As we slither towards the end of 2019, or maybe I should say waddle after this past weekend, I am pleased to welcome restaurateur, cookbook author, entrepreneur, and the man who revolutionized restaurants in the 21st century, Danny Meyer, to today's podcast. Oh, yeah, he's also the guy who gave us Shake Shack. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We just wrapped up Thanksgiving. And not only is Thanksgiving that time that we eat turkey, it's kind of the only time I think I eat cooked turkey all year. It's also a time, of course, for gratitude and to try to avoid Uncle Ray's breath. Okay, that may just be personal. But it's also notorious for being the time of the year that one's family is expected to grate on one's nerves. Right? All the movies, all the the family stone, and all, every movie with Sandra Bullock in a sweater, she's going home for the holidays and dreading it. But, you know, even having a family that you dread is still kind of a good problem, isn't it? I mean, if that's, if that's the worst of it, that it's going to be political landmine fight and one side of the table is red and one is blue, at least we have a family, even if it's weird, and we still get to live freely and our babies aren't locked away in cages. So if the debate is about politics or cranberry sauce, well... It could be worse. And just in case you all wanted to know, I'm on Team Jellied. Okay. This year, I was a guest at my son, Exhibit A, and my daughter-in-law's house with an assist from Exhibit B. They did a great job. I got spoiled. I wasn't allowed to do anything. And before I relapse into a tryptophan coma, I'm going to give you the list, my list of five things. Number one. Last week, I attended the Miami Book Fair, which is the largest book fair in the country, and I think it's now in its 36th year. I had always wanted to see what it was about, having never been invited on my own. It's a giant street fair, and for days, there are book readings, there are panels, parties, signings. It's it, It really is an exceptional thing to see writers being celebrated so much. I was there to interview some authors, which I enjoyed as always, and the audiences were great. The Miami audiences need no invitation to ask questions or even interject into the proceedings. So that was fun. Number two, one of my favorite aspects of this year's Miami Book Fair, well, the only one I've been to, was hanging out with so many of the guests that we've had on our Five Things podcasts. I feel we're kind of a a family. I feel like these are my people, and though this show isn't only about writers, it's certainly a very good place for a writer to flog his or her work, because I like to read, and I think all of you do, or many of you do. Number three, I, by surprise, I fell into taking a single jewelry making class. It was the weirdest thing. I saw it offered on Instagram. I'd never followed the people before. And suddenly there was a jewelry class that I could take. I signed up for it. I got in it. And when I showed up on the Lower East Side, I was the only student. Um, It was taught by 
Caroline and Chris, who are the partners in a company called Icarus and Company. They work in Brooklyn usually, and they spend all summer working and selling in Nantucket. And they're really two cool women. They are artists of many kinds. Besides jewelry, they are ceramicists, printmakers, photographers. They do a lot of work from nature. A lot of their jewelry is from nature. You can find it on the website, Icarus & Co., but you can find more stuff about them on my website at lisabernbach.com. Anyway, I learned how to carve a wax mold, and one day it will be a ring. It may not be a good ring, but it will be a ring that I made. And that's kind of fun. Number four, it was Exhibit E's first Thanksgiving. That's E is for baby, who is six months old, but has the weight and heft of a three-year-old. I'm not kidding. He doesn't know what Thanksgiving is, and he doesn't really know who I am either. He did cry when I first tried to hold him. But You know, I did get some big drooly smiles by the time I left. And I will take a drooly smile, at least from him. Maybe not from that guy on the subway, but from Exhibit E for sure. And number five, the impeachment hearings. They are not just for anti-Trumpers. They are for all Americans. So we can better understand what the framers of the Constitution intended when they created this most precious document. And just because we were born here, grew up here, we don't really know that much. I mean, the impeachment process is really complicated, and we need refresher courses on it. I mean, my son is brilliant, but in the 10th grade, he failed basic grammar because some things aren't taught. It's assumed that we pick it up in the in the air and the water and by osmosis. So that's it for now. In a moment, Danny Meyer head of the Union Square Hospitality Group. Don't go away. Hi, and here we are back with Danny Meyer, never known as Dan or Daniel, um, because he's so friendly and approachable. Danny Meyer is a giant figure in New York. He's a giant figure in the restaurant world. And uh, by everybody's uh, estimation, a good guy. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you, Lisa. And by the way, I I do want to share that I was Daniel uh, as a kid, but only when I was in trouble. Right. And then I tried to be Dan. In fact, I had a radio show in college. I I had a jazz DJ show, and it was... At Trinity College? At Trinity College, and it was called Jazz Set with Dan Meyer. And it didn't (laughs) stick. No one would call me Dan. Dan Meyer just doesn't feel finished. I just wanted to grow up and and get out of that Danny's school, but I couldn't do it. Look, I mean, Danny is is friendly, don't you think? It's it's like everybody's your pal. I try to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dan, Dan the Jazz Man, um, it's great to have you here. And I have a million questions, including when you started your first restaurant that you built was Union Square Cafe. Now, that was 85, I think, 1985. Was The Union Square area was still really dodgy. It had a lot of big discount stores, a lot of homeless people in the park. And you opened a very high-end, exciting, but not stuffy restaurant that people had to determine they were going to go out of their neighborhood to go to. 
What was the thinking there, and how did you know that it would work? Well, first of all, I didn't know it would work, but if it hadn't worked, I literally would have been like the tree that fell down in the forest with no one there to hear it because no one would have cared. No one had ever heard of me. But I I had to do this. I had to give it a shot. Here's what was on my mind. I had actually gotten my first restaurant job just a few blocks north of of their Union Square Cafe. Sixteenth uh, Street, was on Sixteenth right? Street, and for almost a year, I had my first restaurant job on Twenty Second Street, so six blocks north, at a seafood rest, Italian seafood restaurant called Pesca. Oh yeah, and uh, Pesca was in the area which had just been named by New York Magazine the Flatiron District. <laughs> it was the first time we had heard that that term. Right. And those six blocks turned out to be pretty long six blocks because nobody was going down to Union Square. As you said, the park was kind of sketchy, um, lots of drug use. You know, the the commerce was primarily the men's garment district. You saw racks and racks of clothing being wheeled up and down the streets. Um, There were some to be fair, some uh, photographic studios because there were a lot of loft buildings in the neighborhood. Right. And we were just on the cusp of seeing some of the advertising firms moving downtown from Madison Avenue to escape the rents. So what was on my mind was a couple things. After Pesca, I had gone to Italy and France to cook because I, 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 well, I couldn't gather the courage to tell my parents I wanted to be a restaurateur. <laughs> I did say I wanted to be a chef, and for some reason that was more acceptable. Oh, interesting. And so I was cooking in France and Italy, and 100% of those restaurants were buying their food from whatever the local market was. So when I saw that there was this green market on Union Square, which as an Upper East Sider at that time, I didn't even know existed, Uh um, it was as close to what I had seen in in Europe as, as anything. And back in 1985... The green market was only two days a week. It was every Wednesday and Saturday. That was long before they added Friday and Monday to make it a four-day-a-week thing. But I said, cool, if I could get a place in this neighborhood, use the farmer's market just like I had learned for cooking, and then maybe even more importantly, the rents were so low that I would be able to offer great dining value to people. And that was important to me because as a you know, 20, at that point, I think I was 26. I was on a pretty tight budget. I loved eating out, but I never liked getting ripped off. And having spent so much time in Italy, where the lira was so weak against the dollar, I had gotten used to way, way better pasta for about a quarter of the price. Right. And that's what I felt I should be charging people at Union Square Cafe. So, Eight dollars a square foot is what the rent was at the first Union Square Cafe for the first three years. Wow! And that, along with being right next door to the Green Market in a neighborhood where I really believed there was going to be an increasingly large amount of lunch business, because I knew that you know publishers and ad firms all they do is entertain at lunch, at least way back and then. And then, then when lunch was a a meal. When, when lunch was a and meal. Spring and spring was a season. Yeah. <laughs> and people looked at one another over a table. I worked at Spy Magazine in, well, not in 85, but in when it was 
next door right. to the Union well, Square Well, and your cafe. two editors used yeah. to eat in our front window every single day, Kurt and, and Graydon. Graydon. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, Graydon stopped dining with us in 1990 because um, we eliminated smoking from oh, Union right. Square Cafe. Right, And that did not make him very happy No, but point. Kurt Kurt still ate there. Kurt continued to eat there. And probably still does. Um, I... I want to suggest that the success of Union Square Cafe brought life to the neighborhood because within a short order, there were a bunch of destination-ish restaurants right surrounding you. That happens in a city, right? It it does. And I think that um, it's one of the things I most love about the restaurant business is that restaurants really are... At the very, very core, before anything else, a restaurant is a real estate investment. And and then, if it works, it becomes a placemaker. And it becomes a, a public place for people to come. Granted, you have to pay money to partake in the, in the product, but it's not a club. It's a place that you would not otherwise have gathered with people had it not been for this activity. Well, it seems, although people say, oh, don't go into the restaurant business, it's terrible, it seems when it works, you're a provider of also good memories for people. And that is what, to me, would make it so appealing. Not just good food, but that wonderful evening yeah, you Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you, you saying that, Lisa. I, I think that that goes both ways because I think if guests only knew what kind of memories they are creating for those of us providing the service and the food and the memories themselves it's it's kind of incredible you know i have so many i have so many rich stories from all the years of of being in business you know you go back to the early days when when union square union square park apart from the green market days was not still a place you really wanted to be no and um we, you know, it, it was one of these self-selected things where the people who did move there to live, the people who moved there to work, the farmers who got to know the people who live there, the farmers would would eat at the bar of Union Square Cafe when the end of their shift was there, and we would, you know, ply them with free cocktails and hot cider if it was a cold day, and you know that was one of the reasons that we always served burgers at the bar and mm-hmm. bruschetta at the bar and BLTs at the bar. It was fine dining. It was always fine dining, but it was never fancy or snooty. It, it was, was not snooty. It was always snooty. meant to be a place that that anybody could come eat. And um, I also always saw a lot of kids at the restaurant because even though it was fancy and not cheap, it was still a place that the waiters would be kind to your children and you could get a plate of noodles with butter and nobody, you know, batted an eye. Oh, I have memories of being down in the basement with uh, with parents changing their diapers. They had to find some place <laughs> oh, to do how it funny. in the early days. And, of course, those kids have now come back and their parents themselves at this point. Uh, when you got rid of tipping, and I'm jumping way ahead because you, you have a very busy schedule today. Tell me how I know that was a very big controversy when you started it. Um, none of your restaurants take tips. Is that right? A service charge is built in. We're, well, almost all of them. Blue Smoke uh, continues to accept tips. Um, 
we're almost there. But our we've just converted our bar porch light. Um, yeah, we started this in 2015 when we eliminated tipping at the Modern. Right. And then one by one, we rolled it out to places like Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe, Mayalino. Mayalino, um, right. And then a couple restaurants. We Intersect. Intersect, uh, Manhattan, Untitled. Yeah, so we're there's probably more that I'm not naming right now, but we believe that tipping is definitely a historic oddity in the United States. Hmm. And we know why it was created. It was created because the restaurant business has always been hard, and wouldn't it be a neat scheme if, if you could pay for half of your labor and then put a price on the product and then tell the customer, in addition to the price on the product, why don't you pay for the other half of our labor? Right. That's a pretty good scheme if you can get away with it for a couple hundred years or, or more. And so I understand why why people like it. The The problem is, um, problems are actually many. Number one is that the theory was, was always that, that by putting the power in the hand of the guest to either reward or punish the service and hospitality, that that would somehow motivate somebody to either be nice to you when otherwise they would not be nice to you mm-hmm. or to get your get the chef to cook your food more quickly when otherwise they would not get the chef. That never occurred to me. Well, yeah. that, that's, the, that's the theory uh-huh. behind it. But the fact is the food is ready when it's ready. I've never in my life seen a, a waiter prevail upon a chef to cook more quickly. I can't even do that. Right. The, the food is ready when it's ready. Right. And, and quite frankly, I never wanted to hire somebody who would only be nice to you in the expectation of further compensation. That's their job. That's why we hire them. And so then the reality is is that people don't really behave that way anyway. So when you go into a taxi cab, if, if, you're, if you always hit the 20%, you always hit the 20%, whether the guy talked to you or not, mm-hmm. whether the guy went through a stoplight or not. Same thing happens in restaurants, it turns out, that People tip the way they tip all the time. And then finally, the economics of the tipping world prevent restaurants in many cases from promoting the professional careers of their servers because, believe it or not, a tipped employee can actually make a little bit more money than a manager in a restaurant. So the very people they're reporting to are making less than they are, and so there's zero incentive to ever take your career anywhere and turn it into a professional pursuit. Wow. And plus the trickle down. If the server gets the tip, doesn't the server want to keep the whole tip? Well, that all depends on how the restaurant is set up. Many restaurants actually have a pool system, but that leads us to another problem, which is that it's illegal for your tip to be shared with a cook. Oh. And and so that leads to a really, really dispiriting disparity between what a cook can make who worked just as hard on a busy Saturday night as a what, a, wait, what yeah. a server made for yeah. carrying that food out to your table for you. So, you know, we just decided, look, instead of lambasting a system, there's no law that says we have to abide by that system. Mm-hmm. Why, don't we just, why don't we just do it the way we think it should be done and put one price on the menu, don't charge you to buy your coat back at the end of the night, and what you see on the menu is what you pay. And 
it's our responsibility for the price on the menu, not only to cook your food well and to serve it in a timely manner, but to be nice to you. That's our job. Right. That's what should make you either want to come back or not, the degree to which we do that. So that's that's where we are right now, and, and um, I feel really good about it. It's allowed us to be able to pay for things in the restaurant that we might not have been able to do before. We have a... Um, a family leave policy that I'm very proud of. We have health insurance policy. We have 401k for our team. And so we're really trying to treat restaurant workers as professionals in a way that a tipping system makes a lot harder. So that means that part of uh, the employment process, the job-seeking process for someone who wants to work at Union Square Hospitality has to include a kind of hmm, is this a good person or not a good person? And I want to just stop you there. And I, I, I was taught not to interrupt when I was younger, but there's a lot of great people in the world. We don't, we don't go through life trying to determine if someone's good or not good, but we do try to determine if the people we're hiring, in addition to being a really good cook or a really good sommelier or good, good waiter, um, are they someone who is actually wired to be happier themselves when they make you feel better or not? Now, I've mm-hmm. got lots and lots of great friends and relatives who don't have what I call a high HQ, a high hospitality quotient. It, they're not primarily motivated by... Pleasing make, others. Exactly, or, yeah. exactly. So that's not a value judgment on them. It's right. just that I need people who, in addition to being really good at what they do are motivated that that the result of what they do is going to make you feel good. I understand that. And for that reason, I want to ask you why so many prominent restaurateurs or chefs have been, not yours, not people associated with you, but why there's such a high number of bad behaving kitchens and chefs and restaurants that we've all heard about. I have to ask because... It's it's something that we're all just starting to learn about. Yeah, well, I I know what you're I know what you're saying. When I when I started in this business in 1985, most of the really really good quality kitchens in New York either had a French chef or maybe an Italian chef. That I mean, and I'm sure I was missing a whole lot of others along the way, but the ones I was aware of came from a school where the kitchen itself was a complete militaristic hierarchy. In fact, every single position had a title mm-hmm. in a different title, and it all had to do with power. And, you know, whatever the chef said, it was, it was, like, it was like being on a ship. You did it. And people lived in fear of the chef, and people lived in fear of the chef's wrath mm-hmm. or being cursed out or, or whatever. And I think that if you grow up in that environment, let's say you're, you know, very junior in the kitchen, but you see that the way you get ahead is to be meaner and tougher and more powerful. And they were also largely uh, the domain of of male, of men. men. It's not surprising to me that when you're working long hours and there is alcohol and God knows what else. Lots and lots of cigarette smoking and whatever other kind of substances people would do, 
it doesn't surprise me that people would actually misbehave. And I, I'm going to go back to your earlier question because we do know from anecdotal experience that when tips are involved, that the incidences of either guests mistreating servers, mm-hmm. you better be nice to me, sweetie, if you want to get a good tip. Yeah. Um, and I will add chefs mistreating servers. You want your food? You better be nice to me. Because otherwise, it's gonna you won't get a big tip. Right. We've we've eliminated all that kind of stuff, but look, I I think is it? It's, but it's, it, the, it's a there's shame. a pressure. There must be a kind of pressure within the kitchen and to to go through the pipeline from order to chef to back to the pay, to the customer. That must be uh, just much more intense than any of us casually ordering a meal at a restaurant understand for it to be an endemic part of the industry that and again the alcohol and and substances yeah i'm i think you're absolutely right look i i wrote my book setting the table in some part as a response to anthony bourdain's masterpiece kitchen confidential and uh I say masterpiece because it's it's a, a remarkable piece of writing. I just had not had that as my experience. I had not seen that level of machismo and debauchery, debauchery, and, and really, <laughs> yeah. you know, I always looked at cooking as an act of love, not as an act of anger. Right. And I wanted to show a different side of our industry now. I can't sit here and say that in 34 years there have not been issues in the kitchens or the dining rooms or the wine cellars of of our restaurants because, you know, if there's one good part of the whole uh, Me Too movement, it's, you know, I forget who said this, but when the tide goes out, that's that's when you see what's what's really on the floor of the ocean. Yeah, right. And... uh, you know, so while I'd like to believe that by hiring people who have a high HQ that none of this stuff would ever happen, the fact is we obviously don't have a perfect record at hiring people with a high HQ. Well, I, I just think that uh, those of us who are restaurant customers don't understand the degree of maybe perfectionism that the chef is trying to achieve or pressure that the management is trying to achieve. And we think of it as any other night or any other day, but no, it, 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 it's high, I mean, high pressure. But, right. but guess what? High pressure is not ever an excuse to, I don't know, to betray somebody's trust or somebody's lack of power who works for you. Well, that's true. That's true. Do you think that the food? The the fact that chefs and restaurateurs and and the food world, the high-end food world, has become uh, uh, romanticized. There, there's a play off-Broadway right now called Seared. There have been movies about it. But as you, you mentioned, Anthony Bourdain, there is a whole class of people who are now famous, famous, famous for their cooking on television, for their being the owners of restaurants that chic people go to. Is that good for food? 
I think it must be because we've learned to eat things that we never ate when we were kids. Well, you know, I think I first heard that kind of question about 15 years ago. Um, and so the good news is that now I've got 15 years of perspective because when I first heard the question, it was probably when we first started having reality TV shows. Oh, um, right. Those which, two. which truly glorified um, bad behavior in a lot of ways. And I think that it, it gave the impression, it gave two impressions that were not great for aspiring restaurant and hospitality professionals. May I interject? I wasn't even thinking of that aspect of it. I was thinking of pre-reality shows, pre-cooking competitions, pre-people screaming at aspiring chefs. I'm just thinking of, you know, knowing the names of chefs. It used to be you go to a restaurant, even a fine French restaurant, and you'd order, you knew the the owner, or you knew the maitre d'. You never even knew who was cooking back there. But then with Daniel Ballou and Jean-Georges and and uh, Wolfgang Puck, we started to have a celebrity chef culture. Yes, and very much muddied by the sadism that we have subsequently seen on TV. Look, it, it's it's all it's all on balance been a positive thing because I think that as long as as long as young people who who say, um, "Hey, I want to go into the restaurant business," because I saw. Um, Emeril Lagasse on TV and maybe I can turn into him someday mm-hmm. um, or Jose Andres or whatever who's saving a lot of people you know he's a hero for sure uh, I think that the only real downside because because the, the upside is interest just general interest that dining out is a credible way to make a living and a credible way to make communities uplifted and a credible way to make memories, as you were saying earlier. And evenings entertainment. Uh, right. So uh, the, yeah. only, the truly the only downside, as far as I'm concerned, is if one of two things were to be conveyed. Number one is it's easy. You just have to <laughs> yeah. put on your whites and look cool and, you know, get a couple piercings and you're in. No, it takes hard work. And I think that, that uh, the people who put in the effort are the ones that really rise to the top. Jean-Georges was cooking probably since he was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Danielle Ballou. Same thing with Wolfgang Puck, all the people that you mentioned. And it, it's really, really hard work. So if it if we've sent the message that you get ahead quickly, that's a mistake. If, if we send a message that you get ahead because of how brash you are, that's a mistake. And so outside of that, I think it's great. I think that it is, uh, you know, food is no longer the domain of your birthday and anniversary and engagement dinner. Right. Good food can happen and should happen everywhere, everywhere you go all day. Well, I think I think it's true that that it probably makes people very excited about a career in the food business. I once uh, spent a few days at Johnson & Wales cooking school interviewing kids. And my God, these are kids who didn't grow up eating fancy food, but would love to make it for you and would love to work in the hotel and welcome you at at the front desk. I mean, that is a school that teaches HQ or or hones it mm-hmm. in kids who would 
never ate foie gras in their lives. And it's very, very welcoming, I think. I'm proud to have an honorary degree from Johnson & Wales. Well, Dr. Meyer, <laughs> uh, let me ask you a bunch of quick questions before we get to your five things. What city would surprise us as being the most sophisticated food city outside of New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco? You know, it's it's almost impossible to find a city in this country where you cannot eat well right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, because if you're just naming those towns, I didn't hear you name New Orleans or Chicago right. or Austin, Texas right. or Houston. Right. Um, but guess what? It, there's a whole other tier of cities, including the one that I'm originally from. St. Louis, Louis has a food revolution happening right now. And it's so exciting. And, and what here... It's almost the same pattern no matter what the town. It generally starts with really good coffee. Uh -huh. And then from really good coffee, you will often find somebody who either grew up in St. Louis and moved away, whatever the city, moved away. Maybe they moved to New York. Maybe they went to the Culinary Institute of America or Johnson, Wales. And maybe they did a year in Boston or they did a year in New York. And then they come home and they realize that, you know, when I come home, I can actually retain the the warm hospitality that this city has always had, but I can bring some new culinary tricks that I learned, you know, either at school or, or whatever city. And you've just seen this everywhere. You know, when I first got into business, if you did not have a Manhattan restaurant on your resume for at least two to five years, you are not going to get a job anywhere. You don't, but guess what? You, just, you don't need, you don't that, need anymore. that anymore. Well, the last time I was in St. Louis, I um, went to a famous local barbecue place where there was barbecue on noodles or on pasta. Is that a St. Louis thing? It was so fattening and yeah, so I don't delicious. Know that. I don't know that. I know... Pappies? Did you go to Pappies? I think by any it chance? was Pappies. I'm, I've never seen them put their barbecue on noodles before. Now there is a, there's a famous uh, with air quotes, St. Louis dish um, that I, I could talk about for a long time uh, called the St. Paul sandwich. Not St. Louis, but the St. Paul sandwich, and it grew up um, as. A very, very, very inexpensive way for Chinese immigrants to serve food in primarily black ghettos of St. Louis, and what they would do would be that they would they would take um, chop suey, mm -hmm. and it would either be plain with noodles and and bean sprouts, or they would add rabbit or duck or chicken or pork and so for a buck fifty they would then form that into a patty dredge it in eggs fry it god knows how old the oil was right that's probably how they kept it so cheap and they would take that fried patty and put it between two pieces of wonder bread with one piece of iceberg lettuce a pickle and some mayonnaise Wow. And that's the St. Paul sandwich. And to this day, you can find that in St. Louis for, you know, 90 cents, a buck 50, a buck 75 if you want duck in it. Uh -huh. um, and that's the only time I've seen 
pork and noodles on any dish in St. Louis. Wow. I have not heard of that. What is your go-to guilty pleasure food? Oh, that's easy. Sausage and mushroom pizza. Oh. I I can eat that almost anywhere. I don't know why. You know, some people... Some people like a good peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah. I'm sausage and mushroom pizza. Wow. Okay. Well, Danny, it's been really fun meeting you and talking to you. And uh, I have to say, I love your restaurants. Um, Thank you, Lisa. This summer, when it was very, very, very air conditioned in the Union Square Cafe, and I said to someone, Oh, it's a little chilly in here. Someone handed me a black pashmina. It was a nice pashmina. It did the job. I hope you took it home. I did not, but I was very grateful. And everybody and everybody had such high HQ, I want to say. Thank it, you. It really reminded me of something a little elevated from a normal, a normal experience. Uh, you were good enough to give us your five things. So I would like to cue them up for you. Number one... You said your family. Yeah. My family is what keeps me grounded. It, it keeps me with a perspective to understand that, that while all we do all day in the restaurant business and probably any business is solve problems, that what you really want to do is make sure to to understand that the problems are kind of minuscule relative to your real relatives. Um, and I'm coming off of a, a fantastic weekend where um, we got to, 18 of us got to celebrate my mom's 85th birthday with her. Oh, nice. And I realized during those four days that uh, where we were was beautiful, um, but it was just taking time away from the day-to-day stuff with your kids, with their cousins, with your siblings, um, and with my mom that was just really special. And obviously, in that mix, my wife, Audrey. Of course. Uh, Are any of your kids thinking about going into the business with you? Well, not with me, but our oldest daughter, um, Hallie, has just opened a fantastic ice cream store called Cafe Pana. Here in New York? Yes, on 19th and Irving, and she is just crushing it. Oh, that's so cool. Here she opened, you know, right in time for the weather to get cold, and there's lines of people, and really she makes all of the ice cream from scratch, and it's just outstanding. And your eyes are crinkling with such joy as you describe it. I have to, I I can see it. I can see the father in you. Number two, running and going to the gym. Yeah, well, you cannot consume (laughs) as much as I do, and... (laughs) You know, as I, I used to tell our kids, they they would roll their eyes if they ever heard this. But I said, I would always say, uh, and it goes both ways, if you're going to fill the car up with gas, you better drive it or if, or it's going to overflow. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're going to keep driving the car that much, you got to fill it up with gas. Right. It, it, and uh, I fill it up all the time. So I've I've got to drive the car. And I just feel so good when I go to the gym or when I run. Do you do something every day? Three days a week at the gym and then usually two days a week running. And then I take two days to just consume. (laughs) (laughs) Number three, um, you talked about navigating apps. Yeah, so this is an odd one for me, Lisa, because I love maps. I love reading maps. I love the stories they tell. I love the... 
I love the puzzle of getting from here to there and, and thinking about all the different ways you could get from here to there and, and all the stops you could make because there might be a better winery or better restaurant mm-hmm. along the way. And so the same guy who's telling you that um, would also say that my life is better because of apps like Waze. And when I just think about, you know, especially for for a drive that's um, that's local, mm-hmm. like a drive that I do all the time, I love the idea that I could save 15 minutes <laughs> or 20 minutes just by listening to a friendly voice navigating my way there. And you um, can save $15 with Geico. <laughs> No, but what's funny is I love that when you're on a drive, it'll say we just found a faster way. I love that, too. And and I I also love that it even tips me off sometimes when I need to slow down a little bit. I love those. I mean, I, I think it's good for marriages because a lot of men don't like to ask directions. A lot of women do like to stop and ask directions. And now with these navigating Apps, we don't have to talk to anybody. Well, I, I have one more secret along those lines. Yes. Um, and that is that I would say that it has been great for our marriage. I'm more often than not the driver, and Audrey's more often than not the navigator with a map. So we'll be in Europe, and it's it's tough because we both love maps. And mm-hmm. so there would be some discussions along the way. Are you sure? We <laughs> would almost always start with, are you sure? And then when we first started getting those, um, so I'm not talking about an app right now, but there would be those those things you start. GPSs. It was a GPS that did that wasn't Tom Tom or something. Yeah, it wasn't in real time. It just knew what the map was. Right, right. And it was always almost always a woman's voice on there. Oh yeah. And then that would lead to why are you listening to her instead of me? (laughs) And so what I love about Waze is all the different kind of voices you can put in. So I found the secret. I have a a voice named Simon. Oh, the Brit. He's a very, very nice British guy. And we all know the Brits are smart. And I've never once heard Audrey say, why are you listening to to him? Oh, that's so funny. So it's good. It's good. It's peace in the home. You know, I you can record your own waves also. I made a recording. It took a few hours, and and I would add a little detail, little color, like, Lisa, don't do that. <laughs> really? You can do yeah. that? Yeah, you can. Oh. I'll do it for you if you want. Yes, but Simon is sort of above reproach. I'm hoping that sometime we get Julia Child's voice on there. Oh, yes. Well, better make a right turn. <laughs> Yummy. <laughs> Number four is Italy. Yeah, well, yeah. I can't really add anything to that. Self-explanatory. Just minute the wheels touch down in, in Italy, I'm happier. And the night before I have to leave, I'm sadder. I just love it. I could go deeper into places I know. I can go broader into places I've not seen. I could eat the food every day and not get tired of it, go to the markets every day and Learn something new. Um, the I just eggs love it. even are better colored. The Everything tomatoes. Is oh my god! I agree. I agree. And number five, it's not an, an honorary doctorate, but it's pretty good. Yeah, earning the diamond medallion level on Delta uh, is an annual pursuit of mine that um, I may or may not hit this year. 
Well, you have to have goals, Danny. You have to have goals. And I think with the amount of travel that I do, um, there is a discipline sometimes to getting where you need to get on time, but focusing on one airline. <laughs> yes. And I happen to love Delta, but what I really love is when you hit diamond, when you hit the diamond level, which I've been fortunate to have in the past two years, you save time. You often get free upgrades because I don't like to buy first class. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you get into the, the Sky Club. Oh, right. Which is just always very, very peaceful time for me because I love – I'm a little bit odd, but I love getting to airports way, way before my flight because I can get stuff done. And there's generally nobody to, to talk to. Or to. Do you have clear? Clear is another great thing. Clear could have made this list, actually. Probably should have. So, We'll, we'll include it in Delta because it's part of the Delta Empire. And I say I what's think. great about Clear is yeah. people are incredibly well-trained. They are so happy to see you, aren't they? And they walk you to the very, to the, to the edge of the of the altar we of actually the TSA. have one of one of the alumni of union square hospitality group is one of the leaders of their whole hospitality program oh wow I'm very very proud of that i love clear um you can tell i was just traveling um do you I use just, your fingerprints or your eyes i use my eyes same you do yeah people always think that's weird but I can't. My finger doesn't seem to. Same with me. Yeah, weird. Um, do you bring your own food on a plane, or do you eat pl airplane food? I almost never bring my own food. You know what? I occasionally I'll bring a mini Tabasco. Oh, that's smart. Because you can put that on anything, and it won't taste quite as bad. Oh. Although the food smart. on Delta is pretty good. <laughs> and I like those biscuits. Yeah. Do you like those? Yes. Yeah, they're good. Danny Meyer, what a real treat. I hope we get to do this again. Lisa, thank you very, very much. And I want to say that Shake Shack has changed my life and many other people's as well. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Danny Meyer, founder and CEO of the Union Square Hospitality Group. You can follow Danny on his website at ushgnyc.com or Twitter at dhmeyer or Instagram at dhmeyer. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio or maybe one day at a Shake Shack. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you will find links and photos for everything that we discussed today. The podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. He likes pancakes. My team is Espresso Rucci. She likes salad. Michael Port, he likes barbecue. Boko Haft is gluten-free, and Sam Haft is dairy-free. Until next week. Stay warm and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.